I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. All righty, Madigan. So this week, uh, we were kind of chatting back and forth. Neither one of us was feeling especially inspired for a topic yeah. this week. And this week was kind of a wild work week for me. There was just a lot going on. And I was just like, you know what? We want to try and do a feminist fave every month anyway, because our listeners seem to really enjoy those episodes. And why don't we just make it real easy and just do a blanket across the board, classic feminist fave episode. No parameters, just just pure whatever jumps into your head. You know what I mean? Whatever, which like, you know, what's funny is that I struggle when we don't have guidelines for like months and things going on and you know I was looking into that a bit and things like that but you know we just came out of Black History Month and Women's History Month where we had everything very scheduled so I feel like when I get too many options it's too much and I don't yes. know what to do it's too much pressure and I don't want to the wrong thing we got a reset yeah. and I feel like a good old-fashioned feminist fave is a good way to hit that reset button you know what I mean I think that I am going first this week you are indeed going first and I am so excited I'm excited too okay so this person I had heard about this person before because my good friend who or I can't even call her my good friend because I haven't seen her in years anymore because she got rid of all of her social media and must have changed her email because I tried to email her as well. And we used to see each other quite frequently. Um, but What is she running away from? I, I don't know, man. <laughs> maybe she lives like maybe she's a van person now. Like, I'm like, is she off land. the grid? 
I don't know. I don't know. I tried to email her literally like a couple of months ago because uh, I was just thinking about her. But my friend Katie Smizer is the first person who got me like into feminism, really. Like mm-hmm. she's mm-hmm. the person who I credit with kind of getting me really interested in feminist subjects. Um And she is a quarter Japanese. And I remember one time, I think I've talked about on this podcast before, that one of the greatest regrets of my life is not going to see Angela Davis whenever I had the opportunity. And that was with Katie. Katie had invited me to do that and I couldn't get out of work. Um, But Katie is a quarter Japanese and she was the first person to tell me, I think around the same time we were going to go see Angela Davis, she went and saw this woman speak. And I had no idea who she was, but whenever I was doing my prep for the episode that we did on the minor, uh, the model minority myth and Asian American hate crimes, she came up again. And so I was like, you know what? I need to learn more about this person. So today I am going to be talking about Yuri Kochiyama. So she was born on May 19th, 1921, and her birth name was actually Mary Yuriko Nakahara, and she spent her early years and her life in San Pedro, California. Okay. So her parents were Japanese immigrants. Her father was a fish merchant, and her mother um, was college-educated in Japan, but when they moved to the United States, she became a, just a homemaker and a piano teacher. In her early years, Yuri, her twin brother Peter, and her older brother Arthur lived a relatively like upper middle class kind of affluent lifestyle in a predominantly white neighborhood. So it seemed like the family worked really hard to assimilate very much that kind of like proximity to whiteness. Um, Keep your head down, be quiet, just kind of like we're going to work our way up in this neighborhood. They attended a Presbyterian church and Yuri taught Sunday school. She was the first female student body officer at San Pedro High School and wrote for the school newspaper and played on the tennis team. So very much like this is very much like this kind of idyllic picture of a life. <laughs> you I was going to say, yeah, fence. it's very Norman Rockwell. Yes. Early yes. childhood America. Yes. Kind of vibe. Yes. Yeah. It's very American dreamy. Like, you know, like this very family, much so. It, that's very much how it feels like. So she graduated high school in 1939 and went on to attend Compton Junior College, where she graduated in 1941 with degrees in English, journalism and art. And it seemed Again, like her and the rest of the family were living the American dream. They came over. Um, her parents came over as immigrants. The kids were were very smart. They were involved in a lot of extracurriculars. Everything seemed to be coming up roses for them. Now, that all changed on December 7th, 1941, mm. when Pearl Harbor was bombed. Yes, So we talk about this, we touched on this a little bit in our episode on the model minority myth, and then we also talk about it, um, we have an entire episode dedicated to Japanese internment camps and what happened there. So Mm -hmm. I do encourage you, if you want to learn more about those things, to go back and listen to those episodes. But more than 100,000 Japanese Americans were rounded up and placed in internment camps. So one day, not long after this, not long after December 7th, um, Yuri came home from church to find that FBI agents had arrested her father as a potential threat to national security. Oh, God. Yes. So 
her father had been friends with some politician in Japan. So there was that was all they needed. There was uh-huh. some link there. And so they were like, we're arresting you on suspicion. Um, Definitely. Of, of being a traitor to your country, basically. Now, her father was in poor health and he had just returned from the hospital. So when he was released from FBI detention on January 20th, 1942, the six week detainment had aggravated his previous health problems. Oh, no. Yeah. And so when he got home, he was actually already too sick to speak and he died the next day. Oh, my gosh. Yes. After returning home. Oh, So a month later, on February 19th, 1942, FDR issued Executive Order 9066, which forced out approximately 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry um, from the Pacific Coast, especially, and interned them at various camps across the United States. Yuri, her mother, and her brother were evacuated to a converted horse stable at the Santa Anita Assembly Center for several months. (laughs) That's where they lived, in a horse stable. And to to, to look at their life, look how quickly this very... I mean, it really does go to show you, you know, when we were talking about how the model minority myth is so damaging in part because... Because it's not really protecting you. Right. You think that proximity to whiteness, you think that that assimilation is going to protect you, but look how quickly it fell apart. In a matter of months, they went from living this kind of very comfortable lifestyle I American mean, she, dream. Yuri was a was a Sunday school teacher. You mm-hmm. know, like that it's the epitome of like, you know, early American happiness in that era. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it, it really is such a drastic shift Change. that I'm yes. sure especially I can imagine because Yuri was born in California, correct? Yes. She was born in the United States. As were States, her siblings. Yes. As were her siblings. So I can I cannot imagine the feeling of confusion. For betrayal. Why, betrayal. <laughs> yeah. Why? Like, I was born here. What do you what do you mean I'm a traitor or I'm dangerous in some way? You know, I can just imagine the hurt and the confusion that you would feel going from two completely different types of lifestyles. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So after a couple of months living in that converted horse stable um, in Santa Anita, the family was then moved to an internment camp in in Jerome, Arkansas, where they lived for the next three years. So while interned there, yeah, your whole life has just been kind of like thrown out of whack, put on hold, any plans you had gone. Businesses, Yeah, for years, businesses these people owned. Her father um, was a fish merchant, but he was an entrepreneur, so he owned his own business, basically. Uh That, I mean gone like their home gone all of those things well yeah there was i'm remembering when we were talking about the internment camps last year how you know they tried to kind of get their white neighbors to help them out and keep their things safe but a lot of times those white neighbors would just sell their stuff sell Mm -hmm. their houses all you know they weren't actually being protected while they were away yes and that's such a long time like i think about the past year being in quarantine and thinking about how i've just what have I done this whole year, you know, and thinking about starting your life and being stuck in a such a horrible right. place and, for and not, that many years. At least you and I, yes, it's been very difficult, but we've been stuck in our homes. Totally. You know, whereas yes. like this is like they've lifted you out of your life, all of the plans you had, yep. everything you had going on, and they put you somewhere that's not your home. Yes, they've, in this case, she was able to stay with her family, but it's like, 
they put you somewhere that's not your home for three years. Yeah, and you're going to be treated like shit. Yeah. It just, it's horrible. Yeah. So while interned there, she did meet her future husband, Bill Kochiyama. So Bill was also a first-generation Japanese-American, and he actually served in World War II in the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. And they still sent him to an internment camp? Oh, ooh, Liz, we could do an entire episode on the 442nd Regimental Combat Team because it's fascinating um but devastating it's a fighting unit composed almost entirely of second generation american soldiers um of japanese ancestry okay so um i think i said bill was first generation he's second generation just like just Got like it. yuri so their yeah. parents were immigrants um and this entire combat unit same thing like they're second generation so they were born in the united states and the 442nd regiment is the most decorated unit for its size in U.S. military history. Wow. But despite all of that, like, you know, despite the fact that, like, these people, like, they went, they not only went and fought and died for their country, they did it so bravely that, like, a lot of these people, so well, (laughs) yeah, that a lot of these people have purple hearts. Like, they they really... they're kind of incredible, but that's so sad. It's like they were almost trying to prove their Americanness. Yeah, by proving their patriotism and their loyalty to their country by saying, I will go fight against the Japanese in order to prove that I'm an American. And even that didn't work. It wasn't enough. Such bullshit. So Yuri and Bill married after World War II and moved to New York where they started their family. So a far cry from Yuri's semi-affluent upbringing, the couple moved into housing projects, so state-funded housing, Uh where their neighbors were predominantly black and Puerto Rican. So outraged by the treatment of her family and other Japanese Americans during World War II and inspired by her neighbors of color, she saw the way that they um, were treated and the way that they were living. I mean the way that she was brought up was so different from the way that she now saw that like a lot of people of color were living in the United States that she became highly interested in getting involved in the growing civil rights movement. So she began participating in sit-ins and hosting weekly open houses for activists in the family's apartment, including ones in which she invited freedom writers to speak She taped newspaper clippings to the walls and kept piles of leaflets on the kitchen table. Her daughter, Adi Kochiyama Holman, would go on to say, quote, our house felt like it was the movement 24-7. That's awesome. (laughs) The family, at this point, Yuri and Bill had six children together. Ooh. Uh Uh-huh. Getting moved. busy. I know. And she's this tiny little woman. Like, even when she got older, it was like, she's just this little, little lady. I um, mean, God bless the people that can have that many kids. That's too many kids, in my opinion. Too man. many too for many. me. <laughs> for me. Look, some yeah. people, they dream of that and they want to be surrounded by kids like that. I One seems like plenty. It seems uh-huh. like a lot. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but at this point, the family moved to Harlem in 1960 and joined the Harlem Parents Committee and the Congress of Racial Equality. So there's no doubt that the lives of the Kochiyama children were different than that of their peers. 
In the summer of 1963, the family vacation included a visit to Birmingham, Alabama to see charred houses and storefronts left behind by racial protests. The Kochiyamas also visited the 16th Street Baptist Church weeks before the bombing there that killed four black girls. Wow. Yeah, so after that happened, um, her daughter, Audie, says that that was the first time that her mom like sat them down and kind of explained what had happened there. So they obviously had very open conversations about civil rights and race. Um, but that was kind of the big event, like this big moment that she remembers from her childhood. Well, yeah, because it's, I can imagine being a mother having to, you know, because it had to do with children and especially being an activist, I can see where she felt a responsibility to, you know, if, if those four young girls could lose their lives in such a drastic, horrible way, then my kids need to understand why that happened so that they have an appreciation for that. You know, right. you're I mean, never and, too young for that in a way. And they you know? were, uh, yeah, absolutely. And they were there only weeks before. Totally. So I think oh, that's that, chilling. Yeah, I, they had learned the history of that church and the, you know, significance w- within the African-American community and, and all that stuff. And then for that to happen right after that, it probably did feel like a very good teachable moment, you know, for your children. Um, so, yeah. 1963, so that same year, also marked another life-changing event in Yuri's life. The day that she shook the hand of Malcolm X. (gasps) So Diane Fugino, who's the chairwoman of the Asian American Studies Department at the University of California, Santa Barbara, talks about this moment in her biography, Heartbeat of Struggle, The Revolutionary Life of Yuri Kochiyama. So her oldest son, Kochiyama's oldest son, Billy, was 16. Um... The two of them, her and her son, were arrested alongside hundreds of people, mostly African-Americans, during a protest in Brooklyn in October of 1963. I love that this woman took her 16-year-old Japanese son with her to this protest, you know? Yeah. Um, So they were in this packed court. uh, They were in this packed courthouse and there were a lot of activists who were there waiting to hear what their charges were for civil disobedience, right? So they're waiting there and then Malcolm X walks in. And of course, everybody Can there, you they're imagine? all Imagine. Uh, no, like imagine. Yeah, they're everybody in that room are activists or um interested in civil rights clearly because they were there at the protest and this one of the like biggest faces of yeah. black civil rights walks in. So he's getting quickly mobbed by by people, right? I bet. <laughs> So Kochiyama described it um, in a Democracy Now! interview in 2008. She said, I felt so bad that I wasn't black, that this should be just a black thing. But the more I see them so happily shaking his hands and Malcolm so happy, I said, gosh, darn it. I'm going to try and meet him somehow, which I just love this little old lady because she's old in 2008 when she's giving this interview. Right. It's just like, gosh, gosh, darn darn it. So she makes her way to him. She kind of like this little lady like pushes herself. Elbows her way in, you know. Yeah, yeah. And she gets up to Malcolm X and she says, can I shake your hand? And he says, for what? And she says, to congratulate you for giving direction to your people. And so he extended his hand um, and the two shook hands and they formed a fast friendship. Uh, they, clept- they kept in 
close contact through postcards throughout the next two years, and they made trips back and forth to visit one another with Malcolm visiting Yuri and the children in their apartment in Harlem on at least one occasion. Oh, my God. I want her children's childhood stories <laughs> oh yeah Story, but yeah but I can like their childhood literally sounds like a dream to me like yeah I mean I'm oh sure it had its, I'm sure it had its difficulties I'm sure there were times in their childhood where they're like why can't you be normal mom that's the you one know? thing that I think about for myself I'm like I hope that I don't annoy my future children so much that I like turn them away from this stuff you know I'm like I gotta I mean, keep it in check it's it's always a grass is greener thing I think that's always the way I think like if you have a mom who's like very leave it to beaver and bakes you cookies after you know after school every day you probably want a mom who's a little bit more like wild and crazy and cut right and if you have a mom who's like my life is social justice you're probably like gosh I wish you could just be a June Cleaver you know what I mean exactly Um, yeah it's I feel like you don't recognize the things your parents do for you until you grow up and get some perspective. Exactly. Um, Sorry, future kids. (laughs) Listen, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. So the growing momentum of the civil rights movement and meeting Malcolm X and getting to know him, uh, it really radicalized Yuri. Like she was like, I thought I was radical before. Well, I'm go. I'm cranking this thing up to 11, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so she became um, more interested in black nationalism at this time. FBI files later described her as, quote, a ringleader of black nationalists. That's and, awesome. And, and just Japanese. It's so great. Yeah. Um, and a, quote, red Chinese agent, which is just, well, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, On February 21st, 1965, Yuri went to see her friend Malcolm speak at a weekly meeting of the Organization of Afro-American Unity in New York City's Audubon Ballroom. So that day, as Malcolm approached the podium, a gunman opened fire and shot Malcolm. While everyone, you know, the scene is being described and everybody's kind of like running away, Yuri actually crawls towards Malcolm. She puts his head in her lap and she begs him to stay alive. That's where I know her from. I had just read or seen or something Mm -hmm. to do with that. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yes. Time magazine captured the moment um, Malcolm died in her arms. And I'm trying to decide whether or not I want to include this in the pictures that I post on Instagram because it is a iconic photo. I think I will post it just with a trigger warning because I mean, it is a, it's an iconic photo, but it's, it is graphic. It's a, it's a, picture of a man dying and he's riddled with bullet holes and there's just this woman with his head in her lap just cradling his head and it's um heartbreaking for her but if she wasn't radicalized before she was extremely radicalized now because yeah, now now you made her really mad mm -hmm, well because i mean she already had this distrust of the government for what they did to her family and this distrust of the FBI for the way that one, what they did to her family and two, for the way that they behaved within, you know, black nationalist circles, black Panther circles, coin, uh, wow. Cointel pro cointel pro. Wow. Whoa. Um, (laughs) so, you know, like she saw these things and how, and how they happened. And, of course, she was like, well, I don't trust any of y'all anymore. Like, you just killed my friend in front of me, exactly. basically. Or you got him killed, essentially, yeah. 
is the way she saw it. So I mean, you, I would say they killed her friend. Yeah, you if we're gonna get flames. into the conspiracies here. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so she became a mentor to the radical end of the Asian American movement that grew uh, during Vietnam, during the Vietnam protests, because. Like we kind of touched on in our model minority episode, the Asian American movement, although there are parallels and she's a big part of that between like the black civil rights movement, there are parallels. The Asian American movement, part of the model minority myth is that Asian Americans don't get involved in politics, right? Exactly. They kind of keep keep out of it. So there wasn't as strong of a presence um, for a lot of Asian Americans in the civil rights movement. Um, it started to grow during the Vietnam War, but even then, Yuri was extreme by yeah. by those standards. She she was like, I am going to lead the radical end of this movement. Well, right? yeah, she was friends with Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, that's about as radical as you can get. You yes. know, she was she ready. Was not here to fuck around. No. Um, and especially if she felt like, you know, other members of her community maybe weren't radical enough. I'm sure absolutely. she felt a responsibility to educate and to get people just as riled up as she was about it. So that makes sense yes. to me. And I think probably there was some frustration. This is just speculation, but I can imagine that there was some frustration for her being a Japanese American, seeing what had just happened to her people and being like, did you guys just forget totally, what they did yes. to us? Like, you know, like we're just going to go back and pretend like everything's all fine after like they just put us in camps for a couple of years. Like, mm-hmm. and they, you know, took our sons away and sent them to war and let them die for this country that was keeping their families imprisoned. Like yeah. she, I can imagine that there's probably some frustration there. Like, why aren't you all as mad as me? Yeah. You know? I think that's a pretty good speculation. Yeah, I would assume. So um, her and Bill, Yuri and Bill, were both organizers of East Coast Japanese Americans for redress and reparations. And they advocated for reparations and a government apology for the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. And they spearheaded the campaign to bring the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians to New York. Wow, what a mouthful. Um <laughs> Additionally, she founded the Day of Remembrance Committee in New York City to commemorate the day that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt authorized Executive Order 9066, which is what caused the forced removal and incarceration of Japanese Americans. So she and Bill fought tirelessly um, for the next several years until finally President Ronald Reagan in 1988 signed the Civil Liberties Act, um, which, among other things, awarded $20,000 to each Japanese American internment survivor. Wow. So without Yuri and Bill Kochiyama, that would not have happened. That's awesome. Um, After that, she was like, well, thank you so much for giving reparations to my fellow Japanese Americans. Glad I can check that off the list. But I would like to now start advocating for reparations for African Americans because this is some bullshit that they don't have reparations after you enslaved their people for 400 years. Fuck yeah. (laughs) You know? (laughs) That is what is up, Yuri. You can't stop just because you've gotten your piece of the pie. You got to make sure everybody else gets a piece too. I think she was very well aware that like without the black civil rights movement, there wouldn't have been 
a Asian American civil rights movement. You know, I think she was yeah. very aware of that. And so she was always very open to being like, we're going to help each other. And like that's so how this is well going to work. Educated. Mm-hmm. on other communities and things like that. Like she really seems like she had a great understanding where I think most people, as we've discussed with a lot of the problematic factors with a lot of these feminists is that, you know, it's very much self-serving in a way, you know, and, you know, it's great for what they do for the people who are like them, but it's the people that are able to see the struggles and people that are different from them that I think are yeah. truly special. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, In later years, she was active in opposing profiling uh, and bigotry against Muslims, Middle Easterners, and South Asians in the United States. Uh, This is speaking after 9-11, particularly, Uh because she viewed this phenomenon as similar to the experience of Japanese Americans during World War II. Mm Mm-hmm. She supported people she saw as political prisoners and victims of FBI oppression. She worked on behalf of Mumia Abu-Jamal, who was an African-American activist who was sentenced to death in 1982 for the murder of a Philadelphia police officer, Daniel Faulkner. That's an interesting story within itself, um, but I'm not going to get into that now. You you can imagine how that stop went. Um she was a friend and supporter of Asada Shakur, who is Tupac's godmother, uh, who is an African. Yes, yes, Asada Shakur. Uh, she's an African American activist and member of the former Black Liberation Army, who had been convicted of the murder of a New Jersey state trooper, but then escaped prison uh, and re- received asylum in Cuba. So she yes, stated, Asada Shakur. I know, Asada Shakur. I, I really want to read. Asada Shakur has some books that I, I heard are like, you must read these books. So awesome. I should I should get on that. Love um, it. Yuri went on to state that Asada Shakur was like, quote, the female Malcolm X. <laughs> I bet. Yuri also taught English to immigrant students and volunteered at soup kitchens and homeless shelters in New York City. In Debbie Allen's television series, Cool Women, which I came out in Debbie Allen. 2001, I know, me too, Yuri stated, quote, the legacy I would like to leave is that people try to build bridges and not walls. She so died. applicable to the times to come. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, it, I could only imagine what she'd have to say during the... Trump presidency. Oy um, <laughs> but she did not have to see the Trump presidency because she died peacefully in her sleep on June 1st, 2014 at the age of 93 in Oakland, California. Oh, wow. She lived such a great long life. And then died in her sleep. I think peacefully. a lot of people would, would like to go that way. Uh-huh. Um, five days later, on June 6th, 2014, the White House honored Yuri on its website for dedicating, quote, her life to the pursuit of justice, not only for the Asian American and Pacific Islander community, but all communities of color. On May 19th, 2016, the U- U.S. Google Doodle, so, you know, the thing that yeah, comes when up you when you go to Google. Google.com, um, <clears throat> was a picture of her, honored her for what would have been her 95th birthday. Yeah. And it released the following statement. Kochiyama left a legacy of advocacy for peace, U.S. political prisoners, nuclear disarmament, and reparations for Japanese Americans interned during the war. She was known for her tireless intensity and compassion and remained committed to speaking out 
conscious raising, consciousness raising, and taking action until her death in 2014. Playwright Tim Tananya, who wrote a one-act play about the friendship between Malcolm X and Yuri called Yuri and Malcolm X, <laughs> told NPR, quote, there's a Japanese saying that a nail that sticks out gets hammered down. I think most Japanese Americans, especially Nisei, which is um, second generation okay. Japanese Americans, did not want to stick out, especially after the war. She was definitely ahead of her time, and we caught up with her. <laughs> That's a really great way of putting it. That's wonderful. Yes. Thank yeah. you so much for teaching me about her. Of course. That's awesome. I loved learning about her. Oh, wonderful. Well, I am going to be talking today about the person who has been coined as the first ever female private investigator or private detective. Ooh, was she yeah. a Pinkerton? She was not a Pinkerton, but she was hired by the Pinkertons. Okay, okay, I'm so excited. So we've got, we've got a lot of Pinkerton stuff going on in here. And for those of you who don't know about the Pinkerton Detective Agency, I'm going to get into that. But before I start talking about Kate Warren, I want to start by saying there's virtually nothing about her personal life anywhere on the internet that I could find, which I think is so fitting for a woman who spent most of her life in disguise, Amen. undercover. Like, bury it. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't even a photo of her for the longest time that could be found. Like, she was just this infamous name that because of Alan Pinkerton, who hired her, she, you know, kind of gained this name notoriety. But there really isn't much known about her. So this is going to be a fairly short one. And I want to start out with a little bit of context about women in law enforcement. So... She, Kate was born in, what year was she born? They think she was born in 1833. So we're going into the early 1800s here. And women began to work in the criminal justice profession in the early 1800s, but they were usually employed as prison matrons. And prison matrons were there to ensure the well-being of women and children in jails. So they were kind of like, yeah, we want women to help take care of, you know, more of the nurturing side of You know what? Law I'm, I'm not going to lie. I'm kind of like... Not that they wanted women to take the nurturing side, but I'm, I'm like, I'm kind of impressed that you didn't just have men manhandling women in jail. Like, oh, thank yeah. God. I thank God at least. I mean, I'm sure there was still so much abuse and so much like oh, bullshittery sure. happening. And women can be prisons. assholes too. You know what I mean? A like absolutely. it doesn't mean that, you know, there aren't women 100%. that go in there that don't have really bad intentions. But it, yeah, it definitely is something interesting, especially because one of the main roles in the job was to kind of act like a counselor, especially to uh, sex workers, runaways, and wayward children. They were kind of there to to comfort them and talk with them. Um, and that was kind of what they were supposed to do. So as a result of this, many women became involved in social and moral reform movements in the late 1880s and 1900s. So that's just kind of a cool backstory about women in law enforcement in general. But Kate Warren was not a what was it called a prison, prison matron matron i almost said patron prison she matron. was like i'm i'm not all warm and cozy and cuddly okay <laughs> you're not gonna hire me to be your therapist yeah okay? exactly so very little is known of kate's childhood except for the fact that she was born in Erin chemung county in new york and was widowed by the time she was 23 and childless so she's 23 years old 
Her husband just died. She needs to work. She doesn't know what to do. And she finds an ad in the paper for a job at the Pinkerton Detective Agency. So in the book Spy Rebellion in 1883, which was written by Alan Pinkerton, who would go on to hire her, she is described as a commanding person with clear-cut expressive features, a slender brow, brown-haired woman, graceful in her movements and self-possessed. Her features, although not what could be called handsome, were decidedly of an intellectual cast. Her face was honest. What which does that mean? I, I'm sorry. He's, I'm, he's I'm not calling trying to interrupt her, you, but I'm like, what does that mean? He's calling her homeless. He's saying that like she's not ugly. She looks smart, but she looks smart. Yeah, she's she's got a you know picture. You know who you're picturing with that. No, you know, like absolutely. I just think the way of saying that is just like, look, she ain't pretty, but she looks smart. Which I don't even know what that means exactly but okay yeah but he goes on to say her face was honest which would cause one in distress instinctually to select her as a confidant so it kind of sounds like maybe she was a little bit more homely plain jane but like smart as a whip um and could get shit done i don't know i was kind of like okay alan thanks for that kind of shady description of kate but okay i feel like there is this kind of bias that especially like a long time ago, but I think it exists to this day that women who are too pretty are intimidating, you That's, know, so maybe or maybe could it be good like, at the job? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe they were just like she looked like people could talk to her. You know what I mean? Yeah. She wasn't like an intimidating woman or anything like that. So when she was 23 in 1865 and newly widowed, she saw the ad for the Pinkerton Detective Agency and she showed up to the station and Officer Pinkerton was surprised when she told him that no, she was not there for clerical work, but was responding to the ad in the paper. And at the time, Pinkerton had other women working for him as clerks and secretaries, but he had never hired a female detective, claiming it wasn't custom to do so and Kate don't well, care about your customs Yeah, and no kidding like nothing's custom until someone does it okay exactly. somebody's got to be the first yeah and, sh- and no woman had ever walked in and said no I want to be detective so Kate stated her case and apparently argued her point of view so eloquently pointing out that women could be quote most useful in worming out secrets in many places which would be impossible for a male detective well that's very true it is she she noted that she could befriend the wives and girlfriends of suspected criminals and gain their confidence to get information. She also noted that women have an eye for detail and are excellent observers. And Using all of this, your noggin, exactly. And all of this w- totally made sense to Alan Pinkerton. And he's like, "Fuck it, you're hired. You're our new detective." And that made her, like I said, the first ever female private detective ever. And this is before, like, the first female police officer would be for, I believe, the LAPD, like, in the 1880s, I want to say. So this is before there's even, like, women on a police force. This is, you know, she's getting up to the top of it right away. So, um, oh, and there we go. American law enforcement in the 1860s didn't have uniformed female officers or detectives, and it would be many years until women were allowed into frontline policing. So, Kate's first big case came two years later for the Adams Express Company embezzlements. The Adams Express Company was a freight carrier running throughout the North and South in the mid 1800s. The Pinkerton Agency had worked with them previously two years before to solve a robbery. Now they called upon Pinkerton. Pinkerton to solve another crime. 
The prime suspect was a guy named Mr. Maroney, and he was an express man living in Alabama who stole $50,000 from the Adams Express Company. So Kate made herself at home in Alabama, befriended the suspect's wife. She even, um, I think I have it written down later what it's called, but she had, um, it was like a secessionist pin that she would wear to kind of like blend in with the other like Southern secessionists whenever she was in that area to kind of get them to gain confidence with her a little bit. She's like, I'm totally a white supremacist. Yeah. pen? Yeah, she would put on like a southern accent and she would befriend them and gossip and party and talk with them and like totally gain their confidence to get all this information. And that's what made her so fucking good. So she made friends with this Mr. Maroney's wife so well that the wife actually told her where the money was buried and they were able to retrieve $39,515 of the $50,000 that had been stolen. This is genius because nobody at this time, of course, is expecting a woman to be a double agent. No. You know, and that's why so they're like... It's just girl talk. Exactly. I can tell you. Just um, just between us girls, the money is buried, you know. I know. Isn't that insane? I'm like, oh, you got fooled. So, yeah, Pinkerton at this point is like, she succeeded far beyond my utmost expectations. And I soon found her an invaluable acquisition to my force. He's like, you're it. You're the shit. You're great. I need you for all my big stuff. So it also... Oh, and it also proved to Pinkerton that he should have more female detectives that could help his agency as well. Imagine that. I know, right? Like, kind of a good idea. Wow. So, <laughs> in 1860, Pinkerton gave Kate a promotion and made her in charge of his new female detective bureau. Super I cool. I love it. I know. So, this time period was flooded with talk of slavery slavery, abolition, and secession. And Pinkerton had long been an abolitionist. So a lot of these were very, you know, hot button topics for him. And he was, you know, very much on the side of, you know, the Abe Lincolns of the time and all of that, um, and wanted to do what he could to support the union. So speaking of Abraham Lincoln, he had just won the presidential election. And in doing so, did very little to diffuse the tensions on the topic of abolition and so on and so forth. So Pinkerton placed agents in various points in Maryland to investigate some of the secessionists and see what was going on. And as the investigation went on, it became clear that the activity in Maryland didn't end with just what they were assuming were kind of like the railroad activity, but it actually included a assassination plot for Abraham Lincoln. So the following... Oh, yes. Okay. This is actually really interesting. There's a drunk history on this. Is if anybody's there? interested, yeah, on the assassination plot of Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, yeah. that's mm-hmm. awesome. So Norma B. Cuthbert from the Huntington Library stated, quote, it was whispered that there was a plan to blow up the Capitol, sound familiar, and, and seize the arsenal and Navy Yard, that Washington soon would be isolated with railroad tracks torn up, bridges burned, telegraph wires destroyed, that armed secret societies were springing up through Virginia, Maryland, and the District of Columbia, ready and geared for action. Every scheme focused on eliminating Abraham Lincoln. So Pinkerton sent Kate to do some of her 
spy stuff. And at this time, <laughs> I like that you shimmied while you were doing that. The listeners couldn't see, but <laughs> while you were coming medium. up with what to say, there it was like a full shoulder shimmy. It's like, uh, you know, spy stuff, spy <laughs> stuff. You know, she's just I like spy it, spy stuff. And at this time, she went by two aliases. She was either Mrs. Cherry or Mrs. M. Barley or MB. It would be kind of like her code. And she was hired to track suspicious movements along uh, Baltimore secessionists. Her false persona was completed with a thick southern accent that she learned from her time in Alabama. And she pinned, this is the word I was looking for, a black and white cockade, which is a knot of ribbons symbolizing allegiance to the South. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she's wearing the pin. She's got the accent down. She is I'm going to well be on practiced. the lookout for that because I bet you that's the new thing. I bet you like racists are going to start wearing that shit. Oh, my gosh. It's like a, a dog whistle to each other. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep gonna my have eyes to- peeled. Yeah, we're going to put like a Google image of it up on our Instagram or something. So Kate was just mingling in town. She was partying with secessionists at the legendary Barnum City Hotel, which acted as like the headquarters for the secessionist group, made pals with everybody. And through that, she discovered that the most plausible plot, according to Pinkerton's account in a book that he later wrote, was to kill Lincoln while he was getting into the carriage that he would take to his next train across the city to Washington on that bound train. I don't know why I said that so weird in my notes, but that's what I wrote. Um, <laughs> so I did a ton of reading about these railroad stations and stuff, but it's just like way too dense and doesn't really matter. But it is kind of interesting to know that this, so there were two stations and you had to make a stop to go from north to south at some point in Baltimore, I believe. So the spaces between these two train stations, depending if you were going north and south, were about a mile away. So when Lincoln got off his train, he had to get into a carriage, which would then be driven a mile away to his next train. So that was his biggest point of vulnerability. So before his travels, Pinkerton had tried to convince Lincoln to cancel his stops because they were going to stop in all these notable cities where he was going to give speeches, attend dinners, and do flag raising. And Lincoln's like, no, I'm not canceling any of my engagements. I'm good. (laughs) And so it, it, it gets even weirder. So Lincoln is like straight up refusing to cut off any of his engagement so his bodyguard a guy named Ward Hill Lamon tried to give the president-elect a revolver and a bowie knife for protection and Pinkerton was like he's like good luck fuck no no (laughs) Pinkerton was like you're not doing that you're not doing that imagine Abe Lincoln with a bowie knife (laughs) like I can't it would be intimidating. He's really big. Very aggressive. It would be really scary. So, but, you know, Pinkerton eventually kind of talked some sense into Lincoln, and he began to see the truth of his situation. So Pinkerton worked on a plan for Kate to accompany him on his visit to assure he arrived in Washington safely. So the pair, Mr. Lincoln and M.B., Mrs. Barley, boarded the train together along with Lamon, the bodyguard, and Pinkerton. She wrote in her report that the president was friendly or that the president-elect was friendly, even though he was surprised that a woman would be the one ensuring his safety. Mm -hmm. I guess he made a little comment about that, but she said otherwise he was very friendly. Um, But she says, however, she wasn't very impressed with his appearance. She describes him (laughs) as very tall and very homely. So she's got some shade in her, too. I appreciate that. Listen, if they can talk, you know, shit on her, veiled shit on her, then she should be able to do 
do the same, okay? <laughs> exactly. So from Harrisburg, a special train took them to Philadelphia, and another special train took them to Baltimore, where Abraham Lincoln could be assassinated. She stayed awake by Lincoln's side the entire night from Baltimore to Washington, safely delivering Lincoln to his inauguration. And her staying up all night on this train would actually lead to the motto for the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, which is, we never sleep. I love it. Isn't that kind of cool? And yes. Th- this part is funny. So they all had code names during this, obviously, because they're doing spy shit. Uh, so Pinkerton was known as Plums. So Plums sent out, you know, the message to everyone once Lincoln was successfully retrieved. And that note was, Plums has nuts. Yes. They're so cheesy. Jesus Christ. Abraham Lincoln's code name was nuts. Who came up with that? Was Abraham Lincoln like, I I want to choose my code name and I am choosing nuts as my code name? Like, who I know. Like, it's made not, that call? It's not Eagle. It's not POTUS. It's not like anything cool. It's nuts. So he just wrote Plums Has Nuts and it was successful. Kate did her thing. You know what? I can totally see. I feel like that's very Abe Lincoln vibey where he was just like, they were like, it has to be food related. And he was like, I don't know. Nuts. I feel like we tend to think that other generations and past centuries weren't as dirty minded as we are. And I think they are. I think that's Abe Lincoln making a dick joke. Well, do you think that nuts meant nuts back then? Like That's a great like point. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You know, know. that's never something that I When did that become a thing? (laughs) Me neither. Like, when did we start saying that? I don't know. I don't know. If anybody knows, let us know. Please, like, send us an email. somebody knows that, I've, I have so many questions as to what brought you to the answer. It's such an obscure (laughs) thing to wonder. I don't know. Okay, so... During the Civil War, Pinkerton and Kate were very busy. Um, Pinkerton wrote to Abe Lincoln to offer the services of Pinkerton Agency, but before Lincoln could even respond, Major General George B. McClellan asked Pinkerton to set up a military intelligence service for McClellan's command. So at the end of July 1861, Pinkerton took Kate and another man by the name of Timothy Webster and George Bangs to Cincinnati, Ohio to follow McClellan's Ohio Division. During the Civil War, Kate and Pinkerton went undercover in Southern society, posing as a partying married couple and gathering intelligence for the Union. During this time, she had quite an an assortment of alias names, including Kay Warren, Kay Warren, Kate Warren, Kitty Warren, Kitty Warren, and other variations in spelling and similar names. Um, But what's kind of cute is that Robert Pinkerton... Pinkerton, who was Alan's brother, called her Kitty. That was like his pet name for her. So I think that's yeah. Cute. So that was kind of why. But what's interesting is, I guess, as long as she wanted it, otherwise I would be like, Ugh. I like imagine like your boss's weird brother is just like, I'm gonna call you Kitty, yeah. and you're like, please don't. I, I guess they had like a somewhat contentious relationship at times because he didn't always agree with what Kate wanted to do. So, but I wonder if it was kind of like a brother sister. Kind of like teasing thing. I don't know. But I personally think that calling a girl named Kate Kitty is adorable. I like that. I I agree. 
So after the Civil War, she worked on other various high-profile cases. One was the murder of a prominent bank teller by the name of George Gordon, and the killer had gotten away with $130,000. So Jesus, in that in like what, 1860s money this would before be, that? 1840s no, this is 1860s money? because um, oh, okay. 1861 was when she was working um, during the Civil War. So this would have been probably late 60s, but 1860s, but like it's a shit ton of money. Um, so Pinkerton determined that George, the man who was murdered, was getting money for a customer when he was struck in the head behind the ear with a hammer and he died. And Pinkerton felt certain that the prime suspect was this guy named Alexander P. Drysdale, but they didn't have enough evidence to arrest him. So, of course, to get more evidence, Kate was sent undercover, this time as Mrs. Potter, and became close friends with, who do you think she became close friends with? His wife? His wife! Okay. Again, the wife divulged where the money was hidden, and bada-boom, bada-bing, they got the guy. That's exactly what I wrote in my notes. Um, other undercover case, other undercover, oh my god, other undercover cases for Kate is a hard sentence to say. Undercover cases for Kate, yes. It's hard. Oh my god. Other undercover cases for Kate. It's funny now. Okay. Another undercover case for Kate was brought by Captain Summer, who was convinced that his sister and another man were attempting to poison him and his wife. So Kate called herself Lucille and assumed the role of a fortune teller to lure information out of the suspected murderer's confidants. And there's a whole... I really feel like that's some shit out of an Agatha Christie. Like, they're like, oh, I'm a fortune teller. Yeah. Like, why did this work? Like, I really feel like well, you people have should to, be more like, suspicious. I'm sure that, they, that she was able to grab like intel about them and their personalities to know what type of person they would open up to where maybe this person is like one that goes to fortune tellers a lot and would divulge information to them I guess this so is that also would make around sense. the same time as like the spirituality movement, the, you know, yeah. like spiritism and all that stuff was happening around this time so there was probably more of a um people were probably more open to that kind of susceptible stuff. to yeah, this. I mean, yeah. I feel like that there's been like waves, waves of that. I feel like where fortune telling and psychics have been like having. Well, yeah, booms. because I think, I think um, Abraham Lincoln's wife tried to contact their son. Like that was a big, yeah. thing. I think there was a big, there was a lot of that happening in the United States at that time. So totally. Um, yep. And she told everything to her fortune teller. And again, she was successful in, and catching the guy, it's great. So all while she's doing undercover work, she's also in charge of the female detective bureau that I told you about in the beginning because he wanted to start hiring more women to be detectives. So her title was Supervisor of Women Agents, and she worked with more and more women wanting to get into the police force. Alan Pinkerton specifically thanks two people in his memoirs. I mentioned Timothy Webster earlier was one of the people that was brought with him during the Civil War, and he was actually executed during the Civil War for espionage, which is really sad, and I would like to learn more about him as well. Wow. But the other person that Alan Pinkerton thanked in his memoirs are is Kate Warren. And this is what he says. When new female prospective agents would come to the agency, he would tell them, in my service, you will serve your country better than on the field. I have several female operatives. If you agree to come aboard, you will go in training with the head of my female detectives, Kate Warren. She has never let me down. 
<laughs> oh, I know. So unfortunately, Kate did not live long after the Civil War. She contracted pneumonia on New Year's Day of 1868 and passed away 28 days late. 28 days later, with Pinkerton at her bedside. Oh, honey. I know. They were like besties. It's really sweet. So Kate Warren was buried on the Pinkerton family plot at Graceland Cemetery in Chicago, Illinois. Did she not have family? It really sounds like she didn't have anybody. I don't think she had anybody. There's really nothing known about her childhood or anything. Like, I don't even think she had that many friends. I think she lived a very, like, undercover life you know I mean she lost her husband by the time she was 23 and then it seems like she was just I don't know what made her so devoted to this but it seems like it was kind of her life you know so I I think that that's why she and Alan Pinkerton became so close like they just seemed like they were almost like brother and sister to me just had such a high regard for each other Um, and it's really sad her gravestone is actually misspelled it says Kate Warren W-A-R-N instead of having the E at the end. And on her gravestone, it states that she died of congestion of the lungs, which I'm like, why would you put that on a gravestone? That is weird. Yeah, so Pinkerton was concerned about the state of his friend's gravesite after he was gone. So he actually wrote into his will to ensure that her gravesite would never be disturbed and so he really cared about her that's incredible yeah yeah like he made sure that all of his surviving family could watch over her gravesite because it was on their family plot but he wanted to make sure that no one ever got rid of her gravesite or did any damage Mm -hmm. to it or anything like that and he was successful in doing so and that is the story of the first ever female pi in the u.s kate warren Wow, that's incredible. That's so great. I'm just like, I'm dying because I wanted to know more. And I was even like, sometimes you can get um, like PDF files of like Google Books or whatever, but you can read like excerpts of stuff. Mm -hmm. I was getting nothing. No one wrote shit about her. There's tons on Alan Pinkerton and the Pinkerton Agency. I even went through there. so wild. And I couldn't find anything about her. Literally, there's so many articles that are literally copy-pasted from one another where it's the exact same information said the exact same way. So this was definitely a bit of work for me, but I love to speculate about her. I guess there was a Canadian TV show where it was like about her and they've done a few other kind of things in pop culture to do with Kate Warren. I guess she's referenced a few times in TV shows and things like that. What a mystery though. Yeah. Like that's so fascinating to me that this person could have had such an impact on like really the future of women in law enforcement. Um and we don't really know anything about I know well you know (laughs) I think she just I don't think she lived for that long because she was 23 when she started working for Pinkerton so she would have that would have been like I don't know maybe in the late 50s then and she died in 1868 so she did not she probably died in her 30s she was really young and I think that you know much like working women of today you know it really sounds like she was so involved in her career and it really seems like she was the type of person that was willing to give over to that like undercover not let anyone too close 
kind of person. Well, she she didn't do it for clout either, clearly. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like she wanted... Well, it would have hurt her brand if she had had a lot of attention. Definitely. So it's like she didn't want the attention. She didn't want any of that stuff. She just wanted to be good at her and job. And doesn't that make her even better at her job that we don't know anything about her yeah. hundreds of years yeah. later? Because it's like, holy shit, girl. Like, you really kept your identity on lock (laughs) if everybody from the new york times had shown up and been like hey the first female pinkerton agent then she couldn't have done her job Uh because she would have been in newspapers people would have known who she was so she was probably very invested in keeping that shit on lock and if she had lived a long time like if she had lived into old age maybe she would have at that point been like oh here's my life this is everything totally. that I did well, she but would have had, she didn't live that long she would have had like more students too because she did so much training um, right. but again she wasn't able to do it for that long so I wonder you know the longer that she lived I'm sure you know there would have been more stories about her there would have been more amazing things that she did so we would probably have more information yeah. but yeah there's there's yeah. really nothing but I couldn't not talk about her so no awesome <laughs> yeah. that's awesome we had a couple of lovely ladies this time we, did. I feel like we had some very I mean we always do we always pick people we're very passionate about um, who are fascinating characters of history but I feel like this was a good week very um, good week I thoroughly enjoyed reading about her except for the fact that it was so hard to find any real information. Yes. It's like, it's the positive and the negative of it. It's like, it's going to be a it short be one. It can be but frustrating. But I want to know it more. It can be frustrating. I know. I kind of <laughs> want to see if I can check out that Canadian show somewhere online just to kind of see what's up with that. Get a VPN. What is that? It's just like a, um, where you can change the location. Because oftentimes oh. like, if you want to watch something that's Canadian, you have to watch it through like a Canadian website. Yeah. So you need a VPN that tricks your computer into being like, I'm in Canada, so that you can watch tricky, it. Tricky, tricky. I like it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I actually, I was thinking about this when I was looking for someone to cover, and we've gotten a few really great suggestions lately for people who have said, like, you should talk about this person. You should talk about this person. So it would help us out greatly if you wanted to send us in more lovely feminists that you want us to talk about. Uh, please email us or direct message us, any of that. You can email us at neighbor feminist at gmail.com or you can direct message us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can chat with the other listeners in the group page or you can rate and review us on the Facebook business page if you haven't done so already. And if you haven't done so, we appreciate it so much when you leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us be seen. It helps us grow and we appreciate it so, so much. And that's all we have for you today. With all of that being said, we encourage you to to rage on. on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. 
So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.